we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 161 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. It's the 22nd of August 2018, and a few things have been happening over the past 24, 48 hours. We've got a lot to go through. With me, as always, is Scott the Velvet Glove. G'day, Trevor. G'day, listeners. Hope everyone's well. And Paul the 12th Man. Hi, listeners. Hi, Trevor. Scott, how are you? Really well, thank you. We're going well. So at the moment, it's 7.33pm, and according to the news and the 7.30 report and the Twitterverse, it sounds like uh, Turnbull's lost the numbers and there'll be a meeting tomorrow and he'll probably fall, and if it doesn't happen tomorrow, probably in the next two weeks he will anyway. Scott, you're a political junkie who loves this sort of stuff. Why don't you tell us what what's going on or what your thoughts are on the whole leadership fiasco? I would suggest that the Liberal Party has, if they do replace Turnbull with uh, Dutton, has committed electoral suicide. They have completely... Look, they are probably going to lose the next poll anyway. However, under Dutton, they will definitely lose the next poll. Now... It makes absolutely no sense that they would lurch to the right the way they are talking about here because they've got idiots out there like Peter Credlin who keeps saying you've got to watch your right flank, you're losing too many votes to the right and all that sort of stuff. Mm, They claim they're they're losing the votes to Pauline Hanson, One Nation. Exactly. Yeah, we've got a preferential voting system in Australia. If they do actually lose the votes to One Nation... They're not going to then turn around and then give their second preference to the Labor Party. The second preference is still going to run back to the Liberals. If it's because they voted for One Nation for right-wing policies. Absolutely, yes. yeah. yeah. So they're going to end up – the votes will end up coming home anyway. Mm. Mm. Pauline Hanson, at best, might pull 18 20% or something like that. Catter might pull – he might pull fourteen percent after his after Anning's speech. You never know. Um, I don't think it's enough to worry about because, like I said, they're only going to have a. They're never going to. They're never going to win an upper house seat. So then they can't really affect the government all that much. They could win senate seats, which they have. They could end up winning two in Queensland again. You never know. Or probably what's likely to happen is they'll end up winning. One to the Pauline Hanson's party and one to Catter's party. That's probably where they'll end up dividing. Mm. And that would be in Queensland. Okay. Well, that's a good theory. You shouldn't lurch to the right because whatever heads over to One Nation or Catter or the Conservatives will we'll come, come back. back. In exactly. Preferences. Yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> that's ignoring one crucial point, though, Scott. Yeah. You've got an idiot committed Christian who's, who's, running, this, who's running for the show. Well, you've got a bunch of them. Yeah. There. These guys are ideological nuts, nutcases. Yeah, they are. This, this dear listener, if you want to make sense of this, this is the conservative religious right wing exercising its muscle and saying, we can't stand Malcolm Turnbull, this leftist liberal who'd be better off with the socialists in the Labor Party 
he's more suited to that than he is to what they consider the Liberal Party is. So this is the right-wing conservative religious rump saying we're we're not putting up with this anymore because mm. they've had enough. I know that, and that's that's fine. Mm. I mean, my better half has a he has a very wonderful theory about this. He said that mm. if Dutton wins. He's, he was hoping Dutton would win because then they'll be annihilated at the next election. Right. And he said if they're annihilated at the next election, he said that will vanquish the right once and for all. No, it won't. I don't think it will either. But, you know. Has he, looked, has he heard about these pre-selection battles? Yeah. <laughs> has, has, has he looked at this membership thing that we've been talking about? <laughs> these guys are a reflection I know. of where the party's heading. Exactly. And that's why um, I have to admit it. You are right. If we're going to try and take over one party, it might as well be the Labor Party because at least it's not that far down the road. Wow. Yeah. Are you guys fans of Catherine McGregor? Who's who's Catherine McGregor? Catherine McGregor is a um, a political commentator and cricket commentator, uh, formerly a member of the Australian Defence Force. Ah, she's the... Lady that's transitioned. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And uh, very intelligent too and speaks very well. I've often um, listened to her on various um, TV programs. And I came across a reference to Catherine McGregor and looked it up. And Catherine McGregor, it was in an article in a, um, I think it was a Queensland local newspaper somewhere, recommending Tony Abbott return to leadership of the coalition. What do you think of that? I mean, I was I was quite shocked and um, perplexed. It's entirely possible, given the ratbaggery in the in the parliament. I mean, I never thought Kevin Rudd could make a, a comeback, but he did. Mm-hmm. So anything's possible. Well, this is the whole point. I, I think that they haven't understood. Um, they haven't understood the lessons that the Labor Party finally learned. And they stuck with their leader. But, but they don't care. They don't care if the Liberal Party fails at the next election. They just can't stand Turnbull. And they can't stand having a wet, you know, left-leaning Liberal in charge of the Conservative Party. They, they, they don't care if they lose. They just want to get rid of him. Yeah, I know that. And I, I think that if they do lurch to the right, then they'll be out for a generation. I think mm. they'll be out for a number of terms. Mm. You know, it's it really is quite sad to see it actually fall apart the way it has. Mm. And you know, I was Paul and I were talking about it on the way over, and Turnbull has tried to conjole the right of the party. He has tried to give in to them far too much, mm. and it's all just turned around. They they kicked him in the ass, and I think that he would have been better off declaring war on the right and he should have sat them all down and said, look, you don't like me, I don't like you, Corey Bernardi's got his own party now, how about you go join him and then after you lose the next election, don't come crying to me, you know, Mm. because it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever where the Liberals are headed. I mean, they have forgotten that the elections are won and lost in the centre in Australia. And they have lurched so far to the right that the centre now appears to be the left. Mm. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. It's <clears throat> let's let's look at the history in the last few days. Well, what's happened was that we had this um, national energy guarantee policy, mm-hmm. and in that Turnbull was trying to slip in sort of requirements for 
you know, limiting emissions and to, to somehow set some targets and somehow get us to at least comply in part with the Paris Agreement. Agreed. Yeah. And the conservative religious nutters, they hate the idea of that climate change is man-made. Mm. They, they just don't accept it. And this, this is just a thing. I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment. So they had that and they had to exercise their muscle and 10 of them said that they would uh, cross the floor if, if that policy was up for a vote. And the 10 who said they would cross the floor were Tony Abbott, Andrew Hastie, George Christensen, Craig Kelly, Andrew G, Kevin Andrews, Barnaby Joyce, Barry O'Sullivan, Erica Betts and Tony Payson. There's a lot of religious right-wing nutters in mm. that group. They're the Tony Abbott's cabal, basically. And so... Uh, Turnbull, you know, caved in on that. Um, but they've also had the euthanasia debate regarding the territory and they narrowly, you know, stopped that possibility of the territory being able to legislate on, on assisted dying. And they've got the Catholic schools who are supporting Labor. And the thought that the Catholic schools could be supporting Labor and not them is, is killing them. So all of those things, um, you know, were enough. It wouldn't matter what concessions Turnbull made, they'd had enough. Mm. It's, it's interesting. But just getting back to the first one about the, the National Energy Guarantee. So I found an article, and it's a research article, and let me just uh, see if I can come up with I don't know that I gave it to you, but sort of a link I came across as part of something else. And this is from a website called researchgate.net. Um, and what it says is they did this study. And I'll just uh, read the abstract. So this is a, a scientific study. Although nearly all domain experts agree that carbon dioxide emissions are altering the world's climate, segments of the public remain unconvinced by the scientific evidence. Internet blogs have become a platform for denial of climate change and bloggers have taken a prominent role in questioning climate science. We report a survey of climate blog visitors to identify the variables underlying acceptance and rejection of climate science. So they basically looked at, you know, who's more likely to agree with it and who's more likely to disagree. And they're saying that their findings parallel previous work in this field and show that Endorsement of free market economics is a predictor of the rejection of climate science. It's interesting. The two go hand in hand. If you are a real pro-free market, you are quite likely to be a rejecter of climate science. Also, I'm not a rejecter of climate science, no, and I, I, I favour the free market. It's, it's well. How much do you? But also, I'll go on. Endorsement <laughs> of free markets also predicted the rejection of other established scientific findings, such as the facts that HIV causes AIDS and that smoking causes lung cancer. And we additionally show that above and beyond endorsement of free markets, endorsement of cluster of conspiracy theories predicts rejection of climate science. So free market believers, conspiracy theorists are very likely to not take um, on board the whole sort of current climate science, oh, so, you know, generally like a bit speaking. Of a, a bit of a tenuous connection, I have to say. Well, 
I think there's a connection between people who are so credulous that they believe in the sky fairy and they also believe in conspiracy theories and it goes hand in hand with... With I think free it's market the, economics? That's the part I don't get. Mm, they tend to be conservative. Mm. Yeah, there you go. So, um, so that was that little study. What else have we got here? Um, oh, this is the other thing. The other interesting part of this, remember, dear listener, we've had a number of by-elections over the last 12 months caused by Section 44 of the Constitution where people were found to have a, a conflict where they hadn't renounced their citizenship and that meant that they were ineligible to sit in the parliament so they had to renounce their citizenship and then we had a by-election and a lot of them were re-elected. Dutton has got a problem under Section 44, mm. but not, not because, because of, of citizenship. citizenship. No. He's uh, got a family business that's involved in childcare centres and the Commonwealth pays a childcare subsidy to those businesses. In his case, it's a trust, and he and his wife, I believe, are trustees or beneficiaries, sorry, under that trust. So effectively, he's benefiting from a government subsidy. And Section 44... Subsection 5 of the Australian Constitution says, any person who has any direct or indirect pecuniary interest in any agreement with the public service of the Commonwealth, otherwise than as, than as a member and in common with other members of an incorporated company consisting of more than 25 persons, shall be incapable of being chosen uh, on of sitting as a senator or a member of the House of Reps. So... If you're a member of a largest company with 25 shareholders or more, that's okay. Mm. So you can be a shareholder in BHP. It has contracts with the government, no problem. Yeah. But if it's a small company of less than 25 um, shareholders, for example, like two, you shouldn't be having agreements and things with the. So according to some constitutional law experts, it's it's a um, it's a very arguable case. It could mm. fall either way. And Toomey said that. Mm. She said it could fall either way, and yeah. she's the go-to person for constitutional questions in Australia. Yeah. There we go. And I've just noticed here the ABC is reporting the Solicitor General to check if Peter Dutton is in breach of the Constitution. Yeah. Attorney General Christian Porter has called on the government's chief lawyer for advice on whether Pete and Dutton is eligible to remain in Parliament. How ironic. If he gets elected as a leader... And then has to, <laughs> then has to resign his seat... And he lived, he's, out in, he's out in Dixon, which is now is incredibly marginal. The government's got a majority of one. If he falls over in an election, in a by-election that's caused by this, then you're going to have a change of government and then the new government will, will dissolve parliament and move into an election. Yeah, incredible. It's, it's entirely possible. It is very possible, yeah. Mm. Your mate Scamo is doing the numbers. He's, mm. he's trying to... Well, he was. I mean, I would have given in by now, but he was trying to do the numbers to... For himself. To challenge. Oh, really? Yes. So if Dutton falls over, he may... Uh, well, if, if Dutton falls over, ScoMo's yeah. probably the last man standing. Probably. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, you never know. Like, um, it's, it's, Malcolm Turnbull's been called the best Labor Party Prime Minister the country's never had. Um, he has been called that by a few people anyway. And you'd think to yourself... If he really wanted to screw with the new leader, he could actually resign from the Liberal Party and join the Labor Party, <laughs> give the Labor Party a majority of one, and then 
send them to the polls. Who knows what, who knows what will happen. Mm. In other news, Fraser Anning came out with a speech. <laughs> so Fraser Anning was second in line on the One Nation ticket after Malcolm Roberts. Mm. And when Malcolm Roberts was ruled ineligible because of Section 44, Fraser Anning got up as the to take his place. But he immediately quit One Nation, was independent, and then joined Catter's party. So he had, I think, 19 votes. Only uh, 19? He got 19 votes, but because he was second under uh, Malcolm Roberts, he... Uh, he took the place. So a man with 19 votes is sitting it's as amazing. a senator. Uh, incredible yeah, how that works. But it is the system it's we have. It's, it's, system. System. it's a system we work under. It's, it's the preferences and that sort of stuff. They just keep rolling down until you get to the yeah. last person. And if he hadn't have resolved his... Uh, he had some financial trouble that was looking at like it might bankrupt him. If he hadn't mm-hmm. resolved that... He was going to be Pauline Hence's sister-in-law was going to get into the job. Right. Yeah. Okay. There you go. So, you know. So, anyway, Fraser Anning's speech, he came out and said some things about, well, it was his maiden speech. So mm-hmm. he said some things about uh, Muslim immigration. And I'm going to play a little bit of a clip now and, and we'll have a chat about it. So here we go. Thank you, Mr. President. Um, I'm pleased to advise this is my first speech. In order for us to remain the nation that we are now, those who come here need to assimilate and integrate. The record of Muslims who have already come to this country in terms of rates of crime, welfare dependency and terrorism are the worst of any migrant and vastly exceed any other immigrant group. The final solution to the immigration problem, of course, is a popular vote. We need a plebiscite to allow the Australian people to decide whether they want wholesale non English-speaking immigrants from the third world, and particularly whether they want any Muslims, or whether they want to return to the predominantly European immigration policy of the pre-Whitlam consensus. Twelfth man, I suspect you've got strong feelings on this one, or some ideas. Yeah, look, I, I went through his speech, and I didn't find very much to agree with, I have to say, but um, I was staggered by the beat-up in the media over those, the use of those words, final solution. Now, I mean, we, we, you know, those of us who are you know, at all educated would probably make that connection with the, you know, the historical use of that term. But, um, you know, the, the, way I, the way I read it, it, it was really too much of a beat-up over, over the language use because, you know, he had no... He made no sort of conscious connection with death camps, you know, exterminating people or anything like that. And, in fact, his precise words were the final solution is a popular vote, you know. The, the final solution to the immigration problem is, of course, a popular vote. Now, why would people get so angry about just the use of those two particular words. They're very common words in our language and we use them in various combinations and that just happened. I don't know, it might be that he had, you know, that phrase was sort of lingering in his subconscious and when he was writing the speech, they just popped up as, you know, popular phrases or well-known phrases do unconsciously. Mm. I don't think he was making any conscious, really conscious connection with the, the Nazi 
uh, term. And it, I mean, and anyway, the Germans didn't speak English, did they? They spoke German. And in fact, I looked it up. I looked it up in uh, Google Translate. And look, I, I read a bit about the, the history of that. And apparently it started with the killing of babies and very young children as um, a form of what was termed euthanasia. Of course, it was deliberate killing of babies and young children. And in fact, the first child uh, that was subjected to that was a child that was born with um, severe disabilities and, um, you know, apparent uh, well, anyway, severe disabilities. Mm. And so it was decided to to euthanize the child and then they, they, they came up with this idea of euthanizing um, babies and children up to the age of three and then they extended it to older children, teenagers and then adults and then they started... I mean, they started using poisonous gas to kill people in groups of, you know, a couple of hundred mm. in Germany itself before they started shipping Jews out of Germany into Poland and other parts of Eastern Europe, you know. Mm. But in fact, the first term they used was T4. And the T was from the German word for zoological garden. So the first term they used was zoological garden four before the term final solution What's was the, coined. Oh, well, how does that... I don't understand zoological garden four. What does that mean? That was just the code word they used oh, okay. before they coined the phrase final solution in German, of course. So, I mean, the fact that so many people are getting all worked up over just a couple of words I thought was, was over the top. And, in fact... Um, people were were twisting it horribly. And on the ABC news website, in fact, I came across a reference and um, it was a disgraceful exercise on the part of the ABC because they, it seemed to me that they were, they were stating on the ABC website that his speech was, was racist, was inflammatory, but he didn't intend it to be that at all. You know what I mean? So they were... It was probably inflammatory in other respects. It was inflammatory in not other the... respects, but not in the sense that they were saying. Yes. And, yep. in fact, I came across another... another. You thinking of that Cadillac-y one or not? No, I was uh... thinking of a, a journalist that I usually quite admire, and if I can find it. Yeah, yeah. this one. Uh, Michael Koziol. Are you familiar with him? Not particularly. But look at the way he, he twists it. Mm. He writes, um, Fraser Anning delivered an absolutely magnificent, in quotation marks, maiden speech by calling for a ban on Muslim immigration and invoking Nazi Germany's final solution. Now, Fraser Anning didn't invoke anything Nazi at all. He, mm. he just happened to use those two words. Mm. So I thought it was a bit ingenuous of this journalist and others, to deliberately um, make it out that Fraser Anning was deliberately invoking the yes. Nazi Germany program of exterminating Jews, you know, which wasn't his intention at all, I don't think. Yeah, yep. The only thing that, you know, Fraser Anning's speech was reprehensible. However, 
I found myself agreeing with him when he... <laughs> in, a, in a right-wing Tony sense. <laughs> yeah. I did find myself agreeing with him where he said that, you know, you've got to open this up. You've got to have a genuine national discussion about immigration. Mm. It is something I think that we should have as a nation. Mm. We should argue and that sort of thing. We should put it all on the table. And I think those of us around this table would be opposed to a return to white Australia. Mm. You know, that's not going to happen. It's ridiculous that anyone would even suggest that. And I think that, but I do think that it is long overdue for us to have a discussion about immigration. You know, I don't know what the numbers are, but I think that if we had a if we had a genuine open discussion about immigration, you would see the arguments for and against it, and then we'd be able to work out what what an appropriate level of immigration would be. Mm. Right, I'm with you on the on the score that he wasn't invoking a sort of a Jewish style extermination. So remember when Donald Trump um, was was talking about Putin, and he said, I, I, "I wouldn't see any reason why he would have been involved in." Um, fiddling with the American election. And afterwards he said, oh, I meant to say would, wouldn't, would not. But the point was in the context of everything that he was saying, clearly it would have made no sense to insert the word not in what he was saying. And in the same thing here, uh, Fraser Anning's speech makes perfect sense in its innocent form that he was really just saying uh, we need to have a plebiscite without invoking any Nazi-style ideas. So when you look at the context of the words around it, easy to say that. Yeah, he was saying we need a solution mm. to a perceived problem of immigration mm. and we need to finally come to grips with this issue. Yeah, but that was really the most – this is where the whole debate just gets distracted and sidelined by, by semantics and language. Semantics. You know, the crucial thing is yeah. he's saying – We've got more than enough Muslims, thank you very much. We need to stop. And that's that's the issue that should be discussed. And uh, the thing, what he, you know, sometimes a bit like Trump again, Trump can sometimes get partly right answers for all the wrong reasons. And Fraser Adding's reasons are that he wants a predominantly uh, European Christian composition of our society, and that we must stay either return to that or stay as that. That's that's his argument, which mm. is a terrible argument mm. to say why there shouldn't be any yeah. Muslims. It's it's got to be an argument of there are certain elements of certain Muslim populations that are a problem. Mm. Is is where it's got to be, and. So this reason that because we need a white Christian society is just the worst possible reason, but, you know, all that gets lost in... Uh, You're replacing yeah. one lot of nutcases yeah. with, a new, with a different lot of nutcases. But then he also makes another reasonably valid point is that, that we need people to assimilate and integrate, and that is fair comment. In our society, we are reliant on people cooperating. Mm. You know, we're saying to people, you need to... To give up fifty percent of your income above, you know, hundred thousand or close enough to it, um, and just give it to society, and we're going to do stuff with it. You've got to, you need an integrated, assimilated society for that to work, because otherwise people just aren't going to cop it. 
So. And, and we've discussed this before, mm. and of course, part of the problem, in mm. fact, to me, the core of the problem is the government decided to to take immigrants from various different cultures around the world, but made no effort whatsoever to assess um, what, if any, measures would be needed to properly integrate them into Australian society. Yes. And instead, they followed the totally ridiculous line that every culture is equally good at fostering human flourishing and just let them come here and everything will work itself out. Mm. And, of course, that's not necessarily a recipe for success. Yeah. So he's right to say that we need to expect some assimilation and integration, mm. but not because we want everybody to be no. white. No. <laughs> we, just Christian. Want people, we just want people <laughs> to, to agree to certain values that's is, right. is, is the main thing. Yeah, and they're not Christian values, as we yes. would agree. We would say they are European Enlightenment values, which are universalist values, yes. not racist or white supremacist values. Yes, yeah. So... Um, Scott, part of this comes down to uh, remember our discussion from way back in episode 54 on the 20th of July 2016 when I said that we need to be categorising Muslims because it's such a broad term that encompasses such a wide... I mean, Islam is an ideology, it's a you know a series of ideas, and certain Muslims believe in certain ideas, but not others. And I proposed back then four different you know categories um, in the same way that Christians are divided into all sorts of denominations. Um, I was saying that Muslims should be you could have um, a social Muslim, a Muslim by name only. Yes, believe in Allah and that Muhammad is the one true prophet. But don't think about it much. You eat anything, drink alcohol, joke about showing people your prayer room, which turns out to be a wine cellar. (laughs) Women, I've got a mate who's in that particular case. Uh, Women can wear anything. Your kids go to a non-Muslim school and you wouldn't care who they marry. Clearly, that sort of Muslim, you're welcome. Come in. Then we've got Muslim light. You pray a little, fast occasionally, visit the mosque, but not every week. Ladies should wear a hijab. Kids must marry a Muslim. You are not interested in whether non-Muslims observe the faith and you don't care about Jews and gays. You have some friends who are non-Muslim. Fair enough. Good on you. But then we get to a by-the-book Muslim. You observe the doctrines quite strictly. You are offended by non-Muslims who do not observe Islam. Women, preferably, wear a burqa or a niqab. Blasphemy should be punished. You pray five times a day and you insist that your workplace make special arrangements to cater for your religious needs. You have no non-Muslim friends. You go to the mosque every week, you hate Jews, and your children must go to an Islamic school. Probably drew the line and saying, if that's the sort of thing that Fraser Anning's talking about, then I have to agree with him. And, of course, you've got the killing can be okay Muslim, (laughs) which is a by-the-book Muslim who thinks that in some circumstances suicide bombing of civilian targets to defend Islam can be justified or that honour killings can be justified or that blasphemy warrants a death sentence. Now, that sounds crazy, but a significant number of Muslims believe that. I mean, it's not a minority, it's a significant number. So, um, and you, you you called that reprehensible at the time, Scott, and I haven't forgiven you. 
You uh, must have been listening to me and Paul in the car on the way over Are you here. talking about that again? No, because oh. I said to him that I'm going to have to swallow my pride and agree with you on something. All right. I think it is probably time to categorise Muslims. <laughs> well, there we go. <laughs> yeah. so. And I think that we should take the first two mm. on that list yeah. and the rest of them we should then keep out. Yeah, yeah. They're not going to be happy either. So. Sorry? They're not going to be happy here. They'll be in constant uproar if they get in and they're the latter two categories. You know, mm. they're not going to be happy here. So Exactly. And, you know, I mean, what was it? Man, Man Monis, the guy that shot up the sea, uh, the Lint Cafe, mm-hmm. you know, he was clearly a killing can be okay Muslim. Yes. Mm. Now, I think he came over here as a refugee, didn't he? Not sure. Yeah. However he got here and that sort of stuff. He was Iranian. Yeah. yeah. We should have been looking at him and that type of thing, and then we should have been able to assess him and say, "Hey, you're not going to sit. Here. You're not going to fit in. I think you should go." Mm-hmm. Do you yeah. not suspect he had psychological issues? I mean, major psychological issues. Probably, probably, but probably. that doesn't matter for us. I don't think we should issues, have had him here. Yeah, you know? but mm-hmm. blended with um, mm-hmm. doctrinaire religion is yep. a bad mix. Yeah. It was a bad mix. Yeah. Hey, just a little sideline. Uh, just a few minutes ago, one of my uh, one of our patrons, Wayno, sent a link to an article. Um, in Indonesia, a woman who complained about a noisy mosque uh, has been jailed for eighteen months for blasphemy. So <laughs> that's in Indonesia. She probably had it coming. So <laughs> she's in Buddhist the- and uh, ah. and. Um, ethnic Chinese woman had oh, complained about the Muslim call to prayer, yeah. which is repeated five times a day mm. uh, in North Sumatra. And the presiding judge announced her sentence and off she went in handcuffs. So, But North Sumatra is a uh, fairly mm. radical Islamic mm. enclave. Right. It's in the thick of it, eh? Yeah. Mm. You know it, don't you? Aceh. That's where Aceh is. Right. Aceh is in mm. North Sumatra, yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're probably the most extremely uh, doctrinaire Muslim part of Indonesia. Mm. The other thing about the Fraser Anning speech was he gave some statistics about crime. And he, in the speech, said that um, uh, um, Muslims in New South Wales and Victoria are three times more likely than other groups to be convicted of crimes. And I've got a link here to an article at the ABC where the RMIT ABC fact-checking team had a look at that claim. So Muslims in New South Wales and Victoria are three times more likely than other groups to be convicted of crimes. And what they've come out with and they've said is... um, um, basically, New South Wales and Victoria do not collect data categorising convicted criminals according to religious affiliation. So they just don't have the statistics. But uh, there was something about um, the proportion of uh, prison inmates. Yeah. So they couldn't talk about convictions, um, but what they did find was that... Um, A spokesperson for Corrective Services New South Wales told Fact Check, self-identifying Muslims make up 10.3% of prison population, Um, but Muslims are only 4% of the general population of New South Wales. So... 
10 percent in four percent mm, really it's, yeah but so 10.3% of prison populations Muslim but only four percent of the general population Muslim that kind of indicates kind of, if you kind were of bears a, him out if you it? were a betting man mm. you would say it's it's possibly quite he's possibly close to the mark mm. that was the feeling I got too mm. On this, they said that you know you can't really those use those two figures together because they're quite different things. But okay, they're different, but there's a- not that different. <laughs> if you're a betting man, you would you would have to say he's, he could be uncomfortably close to the mark on that one. So he came in for a lot of criticism, and you know. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the things I found most objectionable about the criticism was the tag of racist. Right. He didn't say anything about race except for the reference well, to he Euro he wanted a, European culture. Yes. yes. So that was racist. But apart from that, I mean, we all know. But, but that was the theme of the speech. Yes. So when you say apart from that, it was the key idea: is we just want a more white Europe, you yeah. know, a European, a, Christ, a Christian European was what he was after, which. It was really, let's face it, race. If we go back far enough in yeah. Europe, everybody had dark skin, okay? Yeah, yeah that's true. And I mean, no, historically that is yeah. apparently true. Right, right. Uh, white skin and blonde hair is a fairly relatively modern uh, genetic development. Mm. So anyway, uh, Bob Catter reckoned the speech was fantastic. So, um, yeah. When we are talking earlier about this current leadership crisis, we are talking about right and left. And we got a message from Watley asking, you guys are always talking about right and left, and what do you mean by right and left? And Watley, I did a diagram on what I think right and left and centre is, and it's now <laughs> featured on our Facebook page in the um, as the sort of cover, cover photo. So um, have a look at that, and that describes the right and the left in the middle, and for those of you who can't see it, what I was trying to say is that there's a frustrated centre. So on the left, you've got identity politics, open borders, virtue signalling, victimhood and cultural appropriation that we just can't... Well, we all three of us here are saying that's, that's on the left. Mm-hmm. On the right, you've got anti-abortion, anti-marriage equality, climate change denial, pro-Christian privilege, trickle-down economics, and add to that probably a love of the monarchy, a sort of anti-republic would be on the right. Yeah. And um, What about traditional um, cultural values? They would be sort of right-wing, wouldn't they? Well... Traditional cultural Aboriginal values would be on the left and <laughs> traditional cultural white Anglo-Saxon so would be on the right. I'm so sure about that. Yeah. Well, anyway, in the centre, I'm saying is pro-free speech, pro-choice, pro-marriage equality, except that climate change is real and secular. So nobody gathers up just the central ideas without some of the baggage on the right and the left mixed in with it. That's the problem. Mm. We can't find a party that gives us those centrist ideas without lumping in either identity politics from the left or or conservative social values on the right. Mm. Mm. 
have a look at that Watley on the Facebook page. It's uh, it's all there. I can think of one party that might fit that description. You're thinking of the secular party? It's the one. Yeah. I think... Um, Sadly, it doesn't have very good electoral prospects at the moment. Yep, you're right. And I don't know where reason... Eventually, when we get um, Fiona on and talk about Reason Party, I'll be just curious to see how much of of the identity politics, open borders, virtue signalling, victimhood, cultural appropriation ideas are, are part of the Reason Party platform. That will be interesting to see. Yeah. Mm. It will be. Yeah. Um, right. Um, Canada is often compared to Australia. Similar countries. Big, lots of resources, English-speaking, former British colonies, and um, an Indigenous population that's not doing very well. And that was badly abused by the yeah. European settlers, of uh, course. Lots of similarities. When you travel overseas, I was in a... Uh, on a river cruise once and um, got on really well with some Canadians. I felt that Australians and Canadians clicked and had the same sense of humour and understanding yes. That, yes. that Americans didn't have. That we, we were certainly closer in a sense of humour um, and appreciation of irony and a few other things. That were very close. Anyway, Justin Trudeau, um, he came out with a tweet uh, couple of years back now, uh, actually, mm, January 28 last year, so that would be 2017, and he said, so he's very left-wing, of course, Justin Trudeau, and there you go, Watley, open borders, part of the left-wing that we just talked about. His, his tweet was, to those fleeing persecution, terror and war, Canadians will welcome you, regardless of your faith. Diversity is our strength. Welcome to Canada, he tweeted but that was really easy to do when you're sitting in Canada and it's too far for boats to come. Exactly. You've got a really strong border of United States there. Like nobody can get there. So it's yeah. really easy to say, welcome, if you're, if you're here, good on you. So um, so uh, a bit of a fly in the ointment though is that um, – this is rebounding on him because what's happening is people are landing in, in Central America and they're crossing the United States all the way up to the Canadian border at Quebec and crossing a very porous border there. And they've got huge numbers starting to come in. So last year, Canada received 50,000 applications for asylum, more than double what it received in 2016. So there's a little asylum seeker highway running from Mexico straight up the guts of America to Quebec, and all of a sudden the Canadians are going, hang on a minute. Yeah, and this is why you have to have a regulated border. You've got to be able to control who comes into your country. Yes. It is terrible. I've said it before. It's terribly cruel what we do down here, but it works. You know. It's also necessary. You just cannot have an open border because you have no way of shaping the the economy, the you know social and industrial infrastructure that you need. You know, if you've just got a, a free flow of people flooding into your country, 
you're going to have all sorts of problems. Mm. Yeah. Um, I closed the window, but I'm just going to bring it up again where uh, we had some statistics actually from that Cadillacy Files uh, website. And what he quoted was, according to Essential Media, 49% of the population want to ban Muslim immigration to Australia. So, that really doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's a huge number. Do you think uh, Dutton is, um, has, has figured that into his calculations? Oh, he, he was very strong on that, so he's not going to change it. But it's, it's bipartisan policy. Labor agrees as well. I don't Indeed. think he's going to pick up any extra votes because he's any harder than what's the Labor Party policy, I don't think. Well, there has been a bit of a push of, of late in the Labor Party to uh, relax the um, obviously the people on Nauru and yeah. um, the other place in it, PNG. The mm. problem is, you know, you only have to see what happened when Rudd relaxed it very, very slightly mm. and the boats did start up again. They did. Did they? They did. Mm. It was, I mean, it was something really inconsequential that he did, mm. but the people smugglers took that as an open invitation yes. and they started to flow again. Mm. So, mm. yeah, I don't think it's, <laughs> I don't think it's worth risking. I think that we've we've got it working and that sort of thing. And it's like I've said, it's terribly cruel, mm. but it works. Mm. I'd so like we- to know what options are given to those people now. Like, I'd like to know what what countries they are offered. If, if they're saying to them, you can't come to Australia, but you can go to this, this, and this, and this country, well, see, this what, I'd what, like to know. Yeah, it's, I would love to find out why the government has rejected Jacinda Ardern's offer to take 150 a year right. from Manus and Nauru. Mm. Had they started that six years ago when the offer was first made, you'd be almost completely well, through them by now. The, the mm. obvious reason is because if they were settled in New Zealand and they obtained permanent residency in New Zealand, they would then have free access to Australia. Or yeah. if they had New Zealand citizenship at, at, the, you know, yeah. at any rate. Yeah, but you, you, you can deal with that and then you've, you've got to go through four or five years before you can become a resident or before you can become a citizen well, and it, then after that you've got if to... If you're living in a you know, war-torn shithole of a country, you might factor that, you might... Do the calculations and say, well, it's worth it. It's I reckon. Get I re- on a boat to Australia, get sent to New Zealand, uh, stay there five years, then get to Australia. Yeah, but you whatever. could also find out in five years that you like New Zealand and you end up staying well, they there. might too. Yeah. But, mm. but so, look, th- this was discussed on the drum the other afternoon and one journalist was saying, look, the, the deal with the United States is still uh, in play. Right. And they they've agreed to take what was it twelve fifty or twelve hundred and fifty yeah. yeah, and they've only taken about two or three hundred so far. So there are quite a few more to go. See, I'm up for saying okay, New Zealand, you can have you can have them if you want them. And I'm failing that. I for that group, I'm prepared to give in now and say, you know what, you're that desperate, you can mm. come in and and put a bunch of patrol boats to stop any more coming for the Look, time it is, being. It is terribly, so, terribly um, sad what's yeah, happening to I th- those I people. I think we have to, personally. Yeah. We um, can't leave them there indefinitely, no, obviously. On, no, uh, I, I, you know, I was listening this morning on um, The Signal and they were talking about uh, 
a syndrome that there is showing up in the kids, resignation syndrome they're mm-hmm. calling it, where the kids mm-hmm. are just resigned to the facts and that sort of stuff. It's mm-hmm. bloody terrible what we've done to them. Mm. I think that one, that's got to come to a close. But anyway. We need no a final to solution us. to that <laughs> one. <laughs> Well, I think this, I think the I think the ultimate solution is to the very ultimate quiet, solution right. is to yeah. very quietly no. uh, allow them to close mm. and just no fanfare or anything like that. Just bring them over here I don't in the think middle it of the night. Be done quiet, no, yeah, you couldn't do it without the general public finding no. out. And of course, people smugglers in mm. Indonesia they have they have electronic communications the same as everybody. Yeah, but. No, but I think Trevor's right. If you if you bump if you bump up your troll, patrol boats and that sort of stuff, and, and you, you know, and these people now know you could be stuck on a deserted island for five years. Um, so, anyway, in other words, don't close the camps; just empty them. No, is I that think, what you mean? No, I think you could have closed. It's I think you would have closed them. But you know, the government is using the threat mm. of incarceration on one of these godforsaken places. Mm. As a well, deterrent. Well, the threat is you won't make it. You're not going to get in. It's not incarceration that's a threat. It's just we won't let you in. Yeah. So. How many naval mm-hmm. patrol boats does Australia have? And what know. if 20, 50 know. boats left Indonesia at the same time? Mm. Yeah. They can't tow 50 boats at once, can they? Yeah, I don't know. Some of them inevitably would reach Australia, I should think, if enough of them left at the same time. Yeah, don't know. It's a I tough one. A tough one. I personally think we're incarcerating the wrong people. We should incarcerate the crew of the boats and lock them up for a very long period of time so that they realise oh. that they start to think to themselves it's not worth the risk. I don't think uh, we're going to stop it by incarcerating the crews. The crews no. are just... They're poor, poor they're just poor risk seekers yeah, who are know. just doing it for the money yeah. and they exactly. know that so they'll you, eventually be sent back. Mm. But if you lock them up over here for 10 or 15 years, no. then you think to yourself, no. that's the end of it. That's not going to happen. No. <laughs> I'm going to give you the Iron Fist moniker and I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be the velvet glove. Yeah, I mean, you're yeah. a big old softy these days, aren't you, Trevor? I'm becoming soft, aren't I? Yeah. Hey, we've previously mentioned about quotas and how in the university system in America there was a situation where um, Asian students were being discriminated against because the universities didn't want too many Asian students. So even though they were performing above their sort of you know, if the population was 15%, but, you know, 30 to 40% were qualifying for these universities. So they were having to jump through extra hoops to get through that other um, ethnic groups didn't have to. And lo and behold, what we've got now is the Chinese community in America is starting to get political about this. So there's a link to an article here. Mr. Lee, 49, is among an increasingly vocal group of Chinese Americans who were once politically dormant but have been galvanised by the fight over race-based school admissions because they're sick of their kids being disadvantaged. This is the thing. These things turn around. You know, what goes around comes around. Be careful what you wish for. So... um, uh, yeah, Mr. Lee's worried that if schools calibrate their student ratios around race, 
Asian students are most likely to lose out. Um, so uh, he said here, I didn't think that the US could have such an unfair um, law, basically. But there you go. What's fair in one person's you know, view is unfair in another. This is the problem of, of quotas. Mm. Uh, and just quickly, we often mention Japan and the patriarchy there and, a, and a, a similar sort of thing in that female students in a medical school, Tokyo Medical School, it turns out, were discriminated against, that they, in fact, um, the school was worried that uh, women would get married and not then practice and basically... Uh, set a level of 30%. So even though the women might have been performing quite well in the entrance exams, uh, it was only a maximum of 30% ever got in. Your knowledge of uh, Chinese culture, talk Japanese, to them, yeah. uh, uh, Japanese, sorry. Yeah, look, You're it doesn't surprised. surprise me, to yeah. be honest. Yeah. Uh, although I'm a bit shocked that they would engage in such blatant dishonesty to keep women out. Right. Because yeah. it was it was shocking, right? Yeah, it was very blatant. So, I've got to say, the Japanese do shame well, don't they? Like that mm. photo of the guys when they mm. arrive there and bowing their heads and that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. I okay. And you know, it's one thing I I kind of admire about Japanese culture is that shame still uh, is effective as a as a as a way of maintaining social harmony. Right. You know what I mean. Yeah. I mean, I used to think it was too conformist. I still do think it's a little bit too conformist for my comfort, but it works in a sense, uh, this social shaming. And they take responsibility, you know, like the the head of a department or a company will take responsibility and resign if there's some big scandal, you know. Except when it came or comes to the Second World War, if you compare That's them true. to the Germans. <laughs> that so is a bit of an anomaly. The German school system sort of acknowledges right. the evils and guilt of, yeah. of their German history, mm. whereas it's the totally Japanese. absent from the Japanese education system and there's, there's none of that sort of yes. guilt and shame for what, you know, Japan's role in the Second World War. Do you know, I was just the other day discussing this with a Japanese friend of mine. Mm-hmm. She has a Korean boyfriend. And she was telling me that her Korean boyfriend used to sometimes uh, bring this, the subject up, you know, of the terrible things the Japanese did to Korean people when Korea was um, occupied or part of the Japanese empire. Mm-hmm. And... You know, I asked her what she knew about the Second World War and the various, you know, atrocious things that were committed by the Japanese military. And she admitted that she really didn't know very much. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and I've, I've had this experience a number of times with Japanese people where I've tried to gauge the extent of their understanding of the Second World War and exactly what did transpire. And mm-hmm. they have very little actual knowledge of what happened because, mm. as you say, the Japanese government took a very deliberate, had a very deliberate policy of not really informing their young people of exactly the terrible things that happened because in in their mind they didn't want their young people to feel bad about their country, you know. Mm. 
on the flip side, our own knowledge of of the Second World War and how Japan got involved and the lead up to it is probably pretty flimsy as well. And dear listener, I've been listening to Cam Riley's podcast, The Cold War, and loving it. Like, um, Cam, I don't like the title of it, The Cold War. It's it's really, you know, a sort of going through the history of the 20th century in many ways, but it's, it's you know, as he does, a deep dive and a long run up into the background of the lead up to the war and then finally starting to get into some of the Cold War. But interesting stuff that he's coming up with in terms of how Japan got into the war and, and how the US had imposed um, economic restrictions on Japan and basically parked their Pacific fleet in Hawaii, ready to obviously head in the direction of Japan. So it was obvious what was going to happen. So um, he gives a good account of looking at it from the side of the Japanese as well. So uh, look up Cam Riley's podcast, The Cold War. Highly recommend it. I'm enjoying it. Yeah, look, another point that is made by historians, and I've studied a bit of Japanese history as well, is that the... The Japanese were basically, after the First World War, were emulating the European uh, colonial powers. Mm. And they saw themselves as this sort of um, preeminent people of East Asia. Mm. And they decided if the European powers can have an empire, why shouldn't they? Mm. And they set about creating one. Right wing Tony, when he, he was in Albany in Western Australia, there are. Pictures in a museum and other information there and shows Japanese ships guiding the Australian ships. In the First World War, they did. They acted as escorts to protect the Australian troop ships from molestation, you know, from uh, German U-boats and and raiders. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The other good story Right Wing Tony had was um, uh, one of the guys who worked at his firm uh, was a Japanese guy. And I, he was there when I was there, actually. And he was alive during the Second World War and was involved with the kamikaze pilots. And they would send these young kids off and they were just scared shitless. And they were in planes with wooden wheels so they could take off, but there was no way they were going to land. And these kids had no choice and... He was part of the group that was sending these kids yes. off, these kamikaze pilots, and had very interesting stories to tell right-wing Tony about that. And mm. not only the regular planes, uh, mm. as you described, but the mm. Japanese actually were building rocket planes right. that were designed for one takeoff right. and yeah. one landing only, and mm. the landing was into an American warship. Mm. And I saw um, pictures uh, last time I was living in Japan, I actually was taken to meet an old, a very old Japanese man who probably had, you know, a bit of a bit of lazy money lying around and decided to spend it building a replica of one of these <laughs> rocket planes, right. believe it or not. Right. <laughs> and I was taken to his office to meet him. And on the he was a real estate agent. On the wall of his office was a big framed photograph of a Japanese battleship with all the crew, you know, standing on the gun, you know, sitting and standing on the front of the ship. You know, these 
mm-hmm. type of photo that w- were popular probably in every navy yes. in, in yep. times past, where they would have the whole crew sort of sitting and standing mm-hmm. on various parts and they would take a photo of the whole crew on the front, you know, with the big cannons on the front and everything. And, you know, mm-hmm. he had a, a, a photo probably of one of the big cruisers that was sunk by the Americans. Right. Yeah, it was quite interesting. Mm. But he was literally having one of these uh, rocket planes rebuilt, and they were for that purpose only. Right. Just to, yeah. And, and he, was, he was going to be one of them, in fact. But oh, okay. the war ended before he, uh, he got his call up. Right. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. he survived. Mm. Right, we've digressed. Back to the topics. Now, remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, Bronwyn wasn't happy with our podcast, and we suggested that she go and listen to the whole thing. Yeah. And she did, and she still didn't like it. And that's, <laughs> that's fair enough because we don't mind once Bronwyn then actually listened and said it was uh, not that great, then um, uh, good on you, Bronwyn. At least you then went through the process. And she, um, she made a suggestion that um, we could perhaps get some more left-wing views. So... Um, because she was saying, well, she quite often disagrees with what we say and, you know, we should perhaps get some more sort of differing views. And Bronwyn, good suggestion. It's actually quite, um, well, we have had some. Uh, we had Chris Lamb, who was a religious pastor on the Gold Coast. We had uh, Cam Riley, who argued with us on immigration. We had Robin Bristow, who argued with us on a Bill of Rights. Right-wing Tony on capitalism and a guy called Brett who argued with us about conquered people and Aboriginal issues. And at different times, I tried to get people like Kevin Donnelly, who's a who's a uh, apologist for Christian education, trying to get him to debate with Hugh Harris. We've reached out to Jacinta Nampijimpa-Price. We've reached out to a guy called Alex Deegan, who's... Um, QUT law lecturer, pro-Christian, freedom for faith sort of group. Um, no luck on all those. Uh, so uh, even people who we would be agreeing with and not giving a hard time, like Ferris and <laughs> Dying with Dignity, we've reached out to, and they don't actually respond. So, um, hey, we're only a small podcast, so, um, you know, people look at it and go, well... Why should I bother? So, you know, in our defence, Bronwyn, we're trying. But I I take on board your suggestions. You put forward a few groups that we could follow, and that was the Blot Report. I've quite liked that. I've been reading a bit of that, and she also listed a few other people that we could get in contact with. So all good feedback. Thank you, Bronwyn. And it is on my list to do to try and reach out to more people and I'm implementing a sort of a timetabling thing to make it easy to try and get people to find a time for an interview. And, you know, dear listener, if you're twiddling your thumbs out there, if you're semi-retired, got nothing to do and you want to help out in terms of finding interview subjects, then by all means. Have you reached out to Sarah Hanson Young yet? No. (laughs) No. She's pretty left-wing. She is. Um... You're doing that one on your own because they won't talk to us. <laughs> Why would she want to talk to us? She We're wouldn't. just going to give her a hard time. Like in most media today, you can just get away with quick grabs of nonsense. Mm. You know, you're part of a panel, so you've only got to speak for 15 seconds and it moves on to the next panel member. And 
a sort of a long-form interview where you're going to be really grilled on your thoughts at a deep level is not an attractive proposition for a lot of people. Whatever happened to her stoush with uh, Senator Lionholm? Well, uh, she's waiting in an apology, I think. She's prepared to sue him, so it's going to... Yeah. But I haven't some... heard any, any further news on it, have yeah, you? Yeah, it's just going to take some time before it goes to the courts, mm. though. Mm. Hey, um, I hope she wins that one, actually. I think he deserves to be kicked in the ass. <laughs> you think you hope she wins? Well, just you hope somebody can sue somebody just for yeah, I know. For, that's, yeah, I didn't actually mean that. Right, I just okay. dislikes. I dislike Lionhelm. So you, you're really trying for this iron fist, Monica, oh, yes. aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Scott, calm down. <laughs> you're I'm the very the angry. I'm very angry tonight. I mean, I cannot believe Dutton is taking the leadership. You know, you, you are angry. Yeah. Your your once beloved Liberal Party is just. I don't know, it's, it's just. just Lurched into a conservative abyss. It has lurched to the conservative abyss, yes. Mm. Hey, remember how I confessed to my subscription to The Australian? So that's still ongoing and um, it's coming in quite handy. So I'm doing that so that you don't have to, dear listener. Mm. And we've got a message from Brett who said, Hi, Trevor. Just finished listening to the podcast this week. You are now making a sacrifice and wading through the murk of Murdoch's press. Sorry, as you are now making a sacrifice and wading through the murk of Murdoch's press, I've put an extra $20 donation to pay for a couple of weeks' subscription. <laughs> Hope this makes you feel a little less dirty. As we used to say to someone in my old job, if they took on a shitty task, you took one for the team. Cheers, Brett. Good on you, Brett. Thanks for that, mate. Much appreciated. And while we're on the topic of um, assistance, we've got... Let's go through our patrons, starting at the top. Sean, Alex, Janelle, Craig, John, uh, Jar, Grant, Wayno, Ayame, Brett, the Beneficiary, Alison, Steve, Tony, Caitlin, Craig, Jimmy, Watley, Jimmy Spud, Kane, Bronwyn, Matt J, Robert, Dean, Rod, Pele, Maddock Man, the two Kens, Greg, who gave us a donation, and Brett again, of course, for the $20 Oh, what would you call it? Sweetener for yeah. putting up with the Australian. So thanks, guys. Much appreciated. Um, guys, do you remember an article ages ago, Dexter the Peacock? Yes. <laughs> it was a companion animal. It was a companion animal, something. yeah, and she just carried this huge peacock on board a plane. It, it, well, she tried to. Yeah, so there's they, a great picture it, as, part of the, as, as part of that podcast. Yeah. There's this peacock sitting on like a luggage trolley in the middle <laughs> of an airport. Mm-hmm. And this woman had uh, um, um, Dexter the peacock was um, a, a comfort animal. So uh, further developments in the world of comfort animals, uh, emotional support animals, dear listener. <laughs> So it's got out of hand in America <laughs> and one of the airlines has started to crack down. So uh, this is an article from vice.com and it says, oh, dear listener, language warning in this one, yeah, the F-bomb. I'm quoting a, an article from, a, from this site and I'm going to be dropping the F-word. So congrats to owners of many ponies. As long as you have paperwork identifying your tiny horse as a service animal, you're going to be allowed to continue taking it on southwest flights. But all you other globe-trotting exotic animal lovers are fucked. (laughs) 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 
But Southwest just released its new animal policy changes, which will kick in in September and ban any emotional support animals that aren't dogs or cats or mini ponies. Um, Southwest has joined other airlines, including JetBlue, American and Delta, in cracking down on allowing beasts like peacocks, snakes and spiders aboard planes. It's a reaction to a recent trend of people claiming that their pet kangaroos and boa constrictors help keep them sane. Um, These policy changes also reportedly reflect the Department of Transportation's recent enforcement guidance and feedback from customers, employees and several advocacy groups and animal-related organisations, according to Southwest. What do you reckon? Fair enough to to ban all that stuff? Just leave it up to dogs, cats and and miniature ponies? I can understand people being allowed to take their guide dogs if they are sight impaired, but ponies? Really? Exactly. And that is what I thought. I thought to myself, sure, they're only only talking about um, guide dogs. But then I found out it was available to any dog. Which I love my dog and all that sort of stuff, but I wouldn't travel with her because I couldn't put her in the cargo hold. You know, it would just be too cruel to her. So, but, you know, this nonsense that you've got to have your dog with you, it makes absolutely no sense. And, you know, these idiots are carrying snakes and everything on board the plane. That made no sense either. Are cargo cargo holds (coughs) pressurised? Well, they they do have... Pressurized. They have a section. They have a section on that's pressurized for carrying animals. Yeah. Mm. The miniature horses one intrigued me. That was very bizarre that you would allow a miniature horse on board the plane because, you know, we've all been in cattle class. We know how little room (laughs) there is back there. It's literally cattle class. It is, yeah. (laughs) And there's miniature horses. The the miniature horse, where the hell would it stand? Ah, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) (laughs) Have you got an explanation here? Well... Guys, you've got to do your homework when I give you these articles. There was a link. The, the miniature horse one actually had a link to another article. Guide Horses for the Blind. Tells a story. A middle-aged woman in plain clothes. She gripped a leather harness like the kind used for seeing eye dogs, which was attached to a small, fuzzy, black and white horse, barely tall enough to reach the woman's hip. The woman, Anne Edie, was simply blind and out for an evening walk with Panda, her guide miniature horse. Edie isn't the only blind person who uses a guide horse instead of a dog. There's actually a guide horse foundation that's been around nearly a decade. The obvious question is why. In fact, Edie says there are many reasons. Miniature horses are mild-mannered, trainable and less threatening than large dogs. They're naturally cautious and have exceptional vision with eyes set far apart for nearly 360-degree range. Plus, they're herd animals, so they instinctively synchronise their movements with others. But the biggest reason, and this is, this is really good, the biggest reason is age. Miniature horses can live and work for more than 30 years. In that time, a blind person typically goes through five to seven guide dogs. That can be draining both emotionally and economically because each one can cost up to 60000 to breed, train and place in a home. So there you go. Um, yes, there are limitations. Um, um, they can't curl up in small places, and um, when they fly, 
they stand in first class or bulkhead because they don't fit in standard coach. But who'd have, who'd have thunk it that there's actually a legitimate case for a miniature horse guide animal? That really surprises me. If you've learnt nothing else this week, dear listener, there's one for the water cooler on a Monday morning. Exactly, yeah. You've got a, a guide horse. Mm. Mm. I like the idea of them lasting for 30 years and not having to retrain. Yeah, they, they sound like good value when mm. you put it like that. Mm. Um, friend of the program, Anne, sent through a link to an article this afternoon, and this was about God versus evolution. And that was really interesting, wasn't it? Mm. Mm. So what happened was back in 1986 – there's a biology course at university, first-year biology course, biology like 101, where people were asked to complete a, uh, an anonymous survey in the, in the lecture. And the question was whether they thought, one, God created humankind in the past 10,000 years. That's creationism. Uh, two, God guided the evolution of humankind over millions of years. Three, God had nothing to do with human evolution. And uh, four, they had no opinion on the topic. So biology students at university asked which one. And fortunately, well, uh, back in 1986, uh, God guided evolution of mankind rated higher than God not involved. But... In recent times, it's crossed over, and now we've got roughly 60% of the students are saying that God is not involved in evolution. And just in the little email group we've got, people are saying, oh, that's good. And I was thinking, that's terrible. Like, like only 60% of students in Biology 101 at university are prepared to say that God's not involved in evolution? I thought that was a really low figure. I thought it was terrible. Well, I would have thought you'd get higher at the 80 or 90%. You don't oh. see it as progress of a Oh, it's progress. I think it is progress. It's the University of New South Wales, dear listener, we're talking about. Hmm. We're not talking about the boondocks of America. The University of New South Wales, first year biology course, and only 60% are prepared to say that God's not involved. I wonder if they took the survey at the end of their degree, if they have changed very much. You'd expect there would be some shift. Yeah, don't know. But, uh, but yeah, a lot of people were saying that was good, and I was thinking, that's just terrible. I'm shocked by that. Dear listener, not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, wait, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. Dear listener, one of my favourite stories is the one about the psycho chickens that we related to you a while ago. If you will recall the psycho chicken story, basically, if you're trying to breed chickens that produced a lot of meat or a lot of eggs, 
you would be tempted to look into the cage and see which ones had laid the most eggs or were the biggest, take those ones out, read from those, and keep doing that over generations, and you should end up with a super chook. The other way of doing it was to look at a group of chickens and to see which group is doing better than other groups and to breed from that group. And what they discovered was if you do it the first way, basically you are breeding the bullies and the psychopaths who are stealing food from the other chickens. So you're progressively going to get a more um, bullying and psychotic chicken Whereas in the uh, group scenario, you're getting cooperative chickens. And there's a link to an article that sort of repeats that story, talks about um, Amazon and companies like Amazon, which uh, encourage the psychotic chicken behaviour in their employees and how it's just not good for the company in the long run. So, um, uh, and... It goes on to give the example of how this is playing out in in football teams. And in Spain, um, they've basically got, uh, for their soccer teams, there's no salary cap. It's just a completely free market. They can just spend whatever they want to. And one of the owners decided that Real Madrid was just going to to spend whatever money it wanted to in order to get the top players from around the world, which is what they did. So they outspent the other teams by, you know, significant margins, buying all of these star players. But their success rate, given the money they're spending, is actually quite poor. And um, let's see. So over this period that they've been doing it, um, it hasn't delivered the sporting success they would have expected. Um, the league is historically dominated by two teams, Real Madrid and Barcelona. Since Real Madrid embarked on this strategy, they've seen a return of 18 major trophies for an expenditure of 924 million euros. Meanwhile, for the same period, their main rivals, Barcelona, have recorded 28 major trophies at a cost of 641. So, you know... Um, 18 trophies versus 28, 924 million versus 641 million. So much better value for Barcelona because they've taken a different policy where instead of, you know, buying the star players from around the world and putting them together, they've sort of developed a team-like ethos. And um, so there you go. The Psycho Chicken uh, story played out on the sporting field. I thought that was interesting because I really like the psycho chicken. It's yeah. a bit like mercenaries versus um, people who are fighting for their own country, isn't it? Um, no, because um, mercenaries could be cooperative. But they're but fighting because they're being paid to fight. They don't have any inherent loyalty to the team. Yeah, and, and often these stars were stars because other players were selfish, were unselfishly passing the ball to them or, or covering areas that they weren't covering, allowing them to save their energy for attacking moves. So an unselfish fellow player would be, would be, would be doing the sort of unseen defensive work that the star player may not do, which kept him fresh in order to kick a goal, that sort of thing. It's more what's going on.
And then when you've got a, you probably end up with a problem if you've got a team of full of the guys that are trying to hog the whole limelight. Then you end up with them no longer cooperating with each other. Yes. And you end up with a less successful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Less successful uh, team in total. Mm. Let's see what else we've got here. I'm conscious of the time, and Scott has been just, his energy levels are decimated by Peter Dutton. (laughs) Running out of gas. I wonder how Meredith's going on the trip. Yeah. yeah. Hang in there, Meredith. We're nearly done. You sent me a message, and the subject line was simply, she's at it again. Yes. And I immediately, I hadn't seen the story, but I immediately knew you were talking about Yasmin Abdul-Majid. You just intuitively knew, didn't you? Could only be one person. So she's she's got to get a new line, doesn't yeah. she? You don't have it in front of you? I'll read I've got what it, you, I've got it in front of me. Tell yeah. them what she did. Okay, uh, Yasmin Adjil Majid uh, recently tweeted that she was sitting in a customs queue for an hour and she blamed the fact that her place of birth was Sudan, was it? Is she Sudanese? Uh, yes, I think it's got that on yeah. the passport. Yeah, mm. her place of birth was Sudan and she's a Muslim. She was blaming those th- those two things. Mm. Of course... She was travelling on an Australian passport rather than a British one. Had she been on the British one, she would have gone through the incredibly short queue that would have favoured EU membership, blah, 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 blah. Mm. But she didn't. She decided to uh, travel on an Australian passport. She got held up and she was complaining about it. There's not much more to say about that other than... What a self-centred bitch she must be. (laughs) You took the words right out of my mouth, yeah. She spent an hour in a Cuban customs. I mean, what's so unusual about that? Exactly. Ordinary people do it every day of the year. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of ordinary people, were you aware of the actress Ruby Rose before? No, I wasn't. Remember how we've been talking about this idea that actors, you know, a a transgender role must be played by a transgender person. And guess what? There's a new Batwoman TV series that's going to be produced. And they've decided that uh, the Batwoman, in this case, should be a Jewish um, lesbian. And they've found an actress, Ruby Rose. Um, She's Australian, she's a Jewish woman, and she's openly gay since 2006, she was seen as perfect for the role um, of Kate Kane, who would be television's first openly lesbian superhero lead. But one problem. She's had to quit Twitter because of abuse that she's received from people saying, criticising her because she's neither Jewish nor gay enough for some people. Incredible. She was Jewish, wasn't she? Yes. But not Jewish enough and not gay enough for some people. Oh, you God cannot... So how is it measured? Exactly. You've got to, you know, the fact that she has sex with women, that should make her gay, shouldn't it? <laughs> you would have thought so. And if she has a Jewish mother, that makes her Jewish. Exactly. So that's what they wanted was a Jewish lesbian. So they've got one. You just can't play some people. 
But yeah, the, she's not gay she, enough. She's, she's got very short hair. She, she's had to quit Twitter because of abuse from people saying you're not gay and you're not Jewish enough for this role. Do you know what I think about Twitter? You're better off not starting at all. I've, I've never been involved. I, I wouldn't. Oh, yeah, it just sounds horrendous. Yeah. yeah. And people seem to just think that they that you know if they go on Twitter, they should never. Read an unkind word. Yeah. What do they expect? Yeah. We're in a bit of trouble on this podcast episode. We found ourselves agreeing to a large extent with Fraser Anning, you know, to a significant extent with Mm. what he had to say. Very selectively. Okay, yeah. We're going to now possibly agree with a little bit of the Institute Institute of Public Affairs. (laughs) (laughs) It was republished on the ABC website, don't forget. Yes, yes. And... But it's an article written from somebody at the Institute of Public Affairs talking about the outgoing race discrimination commissioner, Tim Sutpomassam. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Sutpomassam. And... The article was basically saying that this race commissioner has basically been seeing race and identity wherever he's looked, and he's actually doing more harm than than good. Twelfth man, did you have an opinion on this one? I do. And mm. Look, I've long thought that that was a role that just shouldn't exist because, uh, you know, I mean, how do you reduce racism by appointing someone to find more racism? And that's exactly what he did. And every time I hear him speak, he strikes me as someone who's determined not only to find every racist in Australia, but to punish every racist in Australia. Now, we all know that, you know, the way to get people to get along in society is to find find some common ground, find things they can agree on, things they can share and, you know... But all he does is um, uh, want to legislate and, you know, call out racists wherever he perceives them. And frankly, my feeling was he, he found racism where it didn't actually exist. And he would, he would cite racism where it seemed to me and probably other people that there were probably uh, numerous other factors involved in whatever social phenomenon he was observing. But his first you know, go-to cause was racism. The example given in this article is when there were concerns about the Chinese Communist Party influence in Australia and he said that it smacked of the yellow peril revisited, which is effectively to say if, you've con- if you're concerned about Chinese state influence, racism must motivate you. That's yeah, and, of- and that was his explanation. Every mm. time I heard him speak... Mm. Uh, which was a few times, he would always find the racist in, you know, in whatever was, was going on. Yeah. You know, he couldn't think of any other explanation except it must be racism. Mm. Yep. And that uh, makes absolutely no sense whatsoever because you've got a whole situation that, you know, you, you, you're asking about Chinese government involvement and he's immediately pointing to yellow peril, which... Mm. Mm. We're running out of gas here, and I just wanted to go to one last thing before we go, and we'll just leave the other topics for next week. But remember we were talking about freedom of speech and um, 
I talked about the three rules um, where I said, one, you have with some limits to write to, to say what you want without government intervention, suppression or persecution. Two, that is different to interventional suppression by an employer. Arguably, an employer can, with some limits, interfere with free speech. Um, and we talked about that cricket employee. And then the third one I said, you do not have the right to expect private businesses to give you a platform to say what you want. That was in reference to the Alex Jones situation where he was taken off Twitter and other social media platforms. And so I was arguing, well, it's up to those groups to kick him off if they want to. But we got a great message from Janelle uh, one of our patrons, and she made a really good argument, actually. <laughs> You've convinced me again, Janelle. You've done it a few times over the years. And um, uh, look, we'll go into it in more detail perhaps next week. But essentially, I think I was looking at this incorrectly, where I was likening uh, Facebook or Twitter to a publisher like a newspaper. And I really should have likened them to a paper mill rather than a publisher um, because uh, on those social media platforms we provide our own content and we're doing our own publishing and they're just providing a utility service and a little bit like our arguments, 12th Man, when we're talking about shops and how if you're just offering a general um, item that's just the same for everybody then no matter who walks in the shop, you should sell it to them. And these people are just providing bandwidth or, um, you know, the same thing just repetitively. And for that, you know, it's not a bespoke item. It's not uh, custom-made like in like any a sense. Wire service or something, isn't it? Yeah. And in that situation, I think we could treat these companies just like the corner store and say, well, you're providing a stock standard item. You cannot decide to withhold that whenever you feel like it. And so I think they should be compelled to keep him on. And the argument is that potentially he was breaking the law with hate speech. That's really up to them to say to the authorities, got this guy using our stuff and he might be breaking the law. You you tell us to pull him off and we will. So I think that would be my answer to that now. So um, good on you, Janelle. She wrote a really good lengthy um, treaty on her thoughts on that and I've probably simplified my answer more than you, Janelle. I'd be interested in what you think of just treating it like that. And um, anyway... Uh, I'm not sure I agree with that entirely. Right. I've still got to go through it. But, yeah, if you could forward me her email, I will read it. uh, Okay. Didn't I send it to you as a PDF? You got that. I I copied it as a PDF, the whole thing. It's two pages. Yeah, you've got that. I I don't recall the points you made exactly, but I seem to recall reading it and thinking, yeah, I kind of agree with Janelle, actually. Yeah. She She went into sort of utility and and market share, that if somebody has got a virtual monopoly, then in that situation they should be compelled to um, allow publication. Mm. But I think it's a bit simpler if we can simply say that they're providing 
you know, like an electricity company is providing electricity. And, you know, if somebody decides to hook it up to an electric chair and kill somebody, that's not their fault. Like, you know, what people do with it after that is up to them. So, um, so they're just, that's how I would view it. Well, like a wire service. I mean, you mm. you can't monitor what people say over the telephone Mm. and cut those people's service who, Mm. whose opinions you don't like, Mm. you know, you're providing the medium not yep. the content. Yep. So if they developed a platform that said, we are only providing a platform for this particular segment, like, for example, the, uh, the, the female Uber taxi service, Sheba, where it says, this is all we're doing, in those cases you could argue a legit, legitimate discrimination. But if you're a taxi service offering your services to everybody, then when you pull up the rank... Doesn't matter what uh, colour somebody is, you've got to take them on. So you mightn't like it, but that's what you've got to do. So I still can't get my head past that because they are private organisations. They are private companies. Surely they should be able to decide who goes on there and who doesn't. Yeah, yeah but hang on. You, you agreed with me when it came to the corner store. Yeah, yeah. I know, but the corner store is, is something very different to a large multinational company that's, uh, yeah. Anyway, I've got to think about that. Yeah. Okay. You think about that one, if yeah. you, and um, well, we've we had a good two week break, and we've we're now running out of gas. We'll better go, <laughs> gentlemen. Uh, thank you, dear listener, and we'll be back next week. Thank you very much for listening in. Cheers. I can't seem to face up to the facts. I'm tense and nervous, and I can't relax. This Colonel Sanders job is getting me down A crazy chicken chasing me all over town Psycho chicken Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast, and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like, grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf, on their phone, and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon, and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe... You really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, 
contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.